Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining me. If you'd like to actually join me, like in conversation, you can do so at 801-331-8113. So here's something that's been on my mind. I've been thinking about this a lot through the weekend. And I want to contribute to this discussion in a way that doesn't just make you mad or make you feel like, you know, I feel like I should go out and burn something or, I don't know, tear something down or spray paint it or, well, you, you get the picture. I'd like to see something productive happen, but how on earth can we just sit by and, and relax when the truth is being, um, how can I put this, quashed everywhere we look? You know, the... the when I say the media, I hope you understand uh, the mass media, the heritage media definitely has a narrative. And I think it's essential that we understand uh, the, the biggest deception that takes place. It's not so much a matter of uh, of being told outright lies. It's a matter of things that are omitted, facts that are omitted, that if we knew them or if we if we were given them would help us make a more informed decision about what we're actually hearing and seeing. But nowhere is the battle for the truth being fought more hard and more more strenuously than in uh, in digital content. And I want you to hear a little bit. I'm going to play an excerpt or two from Tucker Carlson. This is his take on how Google is trying to censor content it disagrees with. Give a listen to this. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Last night we did something we don't do very often. We spent the entire first block of the show on a single topic. We told you about Black Lives Matter. We told you what Black Lives Matter believes. We told you what the group plans to do to our country as they amass unprecedented amounts of power. The segment went on for nearly 20 minutes, and by the standards of this business, it was probably way too long. There was a lot to say. But in the end, a lot of people saw it. The show turned out to be the most watched hour of primetime television in the country yesterday. It outrated everything else, cable and broadcast, news, entertainment, and sports. And we never talk about ratings, and we're definitely not telling you this to brag about it. There's already more than enough bragging in television, that's for sure. In any case, nothing in television lasts forever. Next week, we'll probably get beaten by a 3 a.m. re-air of Gilligan's Island or a four-hour love boat retrospective. That'll probably happen. The point of telling you this is to remind you that you are not alone. You may feel like you are. Suddenly, your opinions qualify as crimes. Dare to say what you think at work, and you will be fired in the middle of a recession. Write what you think online, and you will be silenced by the big tech companies. So you keep your views to yourself. You have no choice. A lot of Americans are doing that right now. They're staying quiet. And, of course, that's the point of censorship, to keep people isolated and alone, to prevent a consensus from forming that challenges those in charge. If you're forced to shut up, they can do what they want to you and your country. That's why they do it. But last night's show suggested they have not yet succeeded, though they're trying. Millions and millions of Americans agree with you. You are not crazy. Your views are not evil. What is happening to this country right now is completely and totally wrong. And that will be obvious to everyone someday when our French Revolution has ended. For now, most are too afraid to say that. One of the reasons we get to say that, and often do, is that Fox News is an independent company. We are not dependent on the progressive tech monopoly, Google, to make a living here. Thank heaven. 
Most media companies are dependent on Google. Google controls 70% of all online advertising. So if you're in the news business, you obey Google. When Google tells you to do something, you do it. You have no choice. They can bankrupt you in a minute, and they will. In all of human history, no single entity has ever had more control over information than Google does right now. So if you're worried about the concentration of power in the hands of a few unaccountable actors, and you very much should be, nobody has more unchecked power than Google does. This afternoon, NBC News decided to use some of Google's power to shut down a couple of its competitors. Power is useful for that. An NBC employee called Adele Macomo Frazier forwarded Google executives a screed from a left-wing activist group in England denouncing two sites, Zero Hedge and The Federalist, as, quote, racist. Google immediately took the bait, of course. The company threatened to ban both news organizations from Google's ad platform, in other words, to cut off their revenue. Adele Macomo Frazier was thrilled by this. She immediately fired off a victory tweet boasting about the censorship she had inspired. She called the two sites far right. That's a term that has no meaning but does suggest some kind of immoral behavior that Adele Macomo Frazier disapproves of. At the end of her tweet, she thanked the activists who helped her to silence competing views, quote, for their hard work and collaboration, exclamation point, hashtag Black Lives Matter, with three raised fists at the end. Adele Macomo Frazier seemed very satisfied with herself. She had done her part for the revolution today. So what did Zero Hedge and the Federalists do to deserve this, to be demonetized? Well, we asked Google, and they told us that the two sites maintain unmoderated comments sections. In other words, readers get to say what they want. Google finds this intolerable. Faced with destruction, the Federalists had no choice but to submit to Google. The site deleted its comments section entirely. No more saying what you think about articles on The Federalist. Google has banned that now. Zero Hedge still does have comments, so it has been demonetized. We'll see if they can continue operating. All of this raises an interesting question, though. Google says it now holds conservative websites responsible for the comments of their readers. And yet, irony of ironies, thanks to a special carve-out Google has received from the United States Congress, something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, remember that, Google itself is not responsible for content on its platform because the Congress says it doesn't have to be. So if you're slandered by someone, for example, and that slander passes through Google servers, you cannot sue Google over it. Google is immune from the consequences. Immunity is a very nice thing to have if you're a big company. Fox News doesn't have it. But again, thanks to Congress, Google does have immunity. And that's one of the main reasons that Google's founders are some of the richest and most powerful people in the world, because Congress allowed them to be. Senator Josh Hawley pointed this out today. Let's hope he and his colleagues act soon to revoke this privilege. If Google will not extend 230 protections to others, Google should not enjoy those protections itself, obviously. Google should have faced these consequences a long time ago. Congress should have done this years ago. It's been clear for a very long time that the big tech monopolies have now surpassed the federal government as the chief threat to our liberties. Google is the most powerful company in the history of the world. It's the portal through which the bulk of our information flows. That means that if Google isn't on the level, neither is our understanding of the world. To an unprecedented extent, Google controls reality. Now, Google has already shown a disturbing willingness to distort reality for ideological ends.
All right. I'm going to stop it there, but um, I have it linked in the show notes. You can find those at LovingLiberty.net. So that leaves you and me with a little bit of a quandary, does it not? How can we know what's going on? And, and look, I'll, I'll come right out and say, I don't know that I agree with the idea. In fact, I'll come right out and say, I don't agree with the idea. Congress needs to step in and, you know, rein in these companies. Do you really want government to get involved? Do you really want the government, the state, at any level, to become the arbiter of what you are allowed to see, hear, watch, read, whatever? This is where I am such a stickler for the free market. But the problem we run into, and one of the reasons that Google enjoys the monopoly that it has, is not because it necessarily has has built the better model. Yes, they were there first. They have been innovators, definitely. But they also carry political clout in the sense that they are in bed with government. And this is true, I think, of every one of the big tech companies. And that brings some corresponding favors, which help to keep out potential competitors, which means the free market uh, really isn't, uh, isn't functioning as far as uh, offering people an alternative. I know there's DuckDuckGo and there are a few others, but isn't it strange how they never seem to get much traction? By the way, I'm not saying you shouldn't use them. I'm just saying Google enjoys privileges and favors that, that accrue to it by virtue of its relationship with big government, including some of the uh, secret stuff that's going on and the information that they share with the uh, national security apparatus. Pretty scary stuff. But it still leaves us the question. How do we answer the question of where do you get information you can actually count on? And the truth of the matter is, like I shared in the last hour, you got to be willing to be like Jeff Tucker. And if there's something you want to know about, in his case, he wanted to know a little bit about uh, about uh, epidemiology. He wanted to know about viruses and biology. So he got a book, you know, Biology for Dummies or, or uh, Virology for, for, uh, for Dummies. And he read and applied himself. No, it didn't make him an expert. I mean, he wasn't walking around wearing a stethoscope around his neck and a, and a lab coat. But that's exactly the kind of research and willingness and effort we should have when it comes to really understanding what's going on. We should be willing to do the digging and learn for ourselves. And I know numerous people who have done this on various subjects. I've done it myself on things that truly matter to me. Then you're not dependent on Google or Tucker Carlson, for that matter, to tell you how the cow chewed the cabbage. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, let's dive into some of the meat of this hour. I had a chance to uh, travel to Idaho this weekend and go see my dear old gray-haired mama. Now, I saw her about a month ago at a cousin's funeral, and that's the first time I'd seen her in months. And, you know, it was brief. You know, she was wearing a mask, and we, we were able to see her. And I just, I remember when I hugged her there at that funeral, how she just held onto that hug. And it was very clear, man, she is, she was just like parched for some human attention, just for that, that connection, that affection from another person. And when, when two of my boys and I went up and and visited with her over the Father's Day weekend, and 
the same thing, you know, just it, it was it was so clear. She she has bravely. I mean, she's 85 years old. OK, so she's in the high risk category when it comes to covid-19. The area of Idaho where she lives has had a pretty fair outbreak. Thanks to a bunch of Californians who thought, yeah, we'll flee up to our Sun Valley home. And they brought COVID-19 with them. Thanks a lot, guys. But once again, every time we would give her a hug, she just held on. And she commented several times about how lonely it had been. Now, keep in mind, the telephone helps. I mean, come on, we can we can send pictures and texts and, you know, we're, we're in touch very regularly. I call her a, a few times a week. Uh, she has a sister who calls her twice a day, morning and night. But it's just not the same thing as actually being there with someone. And when I hear talk about, well, you know, there's uh, there's another wave coming through and we may have to shut it all down again. My desire to resist that shutdown goes off the charts. Not because I want the disease to spread, not because I want to see her catch COVID-19 and get to fight it out, you know, in her 85-year-old body. No. But I think something really insidious is happening. I think there is something that is killing her slowly and more painfully than COVID-19. That is that, that crushing weight of loneliness. Seriously, I came home and I told my kids, I'm like, okay, guys, we got to do a better job. I want each of you kids at least once a week. I want you on the phone with grandma and and just talk to her. Just let her hear another voice. You know, we'll, we'll get up there as often as we can. But in the meantime, we have got to be one another's support system. Most of my kids have their own phones, so it's, you know, it's pretty simple thing for my daughter who doesn't. I said, I'll give you my phone. And you can call her anytime. You come and ask me. I'll be, if I'm in the middle of a call, hey, I want to talk to Grandma. I'll hang up. Sorry, Mr. President. I got to go. And you can do it. I don't know why I'm sharing this other than I know that there are people out there like my mom who are aged and isolated and doing the very best they can to avoid being at risk. And thankfully, she has these incredible neighbors. Just these, these are angels among us. That, uh, that care for her and, and check on her. They come over and have church with her on Sunday. And just they have done so much to help lift her spirits. But um, it really struck me just how lonely she has been. And it made me realize, you know, I've, I've got to step my game up. I've got to step it up and, and be there. And I'm encouraging you. If you know someone in a similar situation, it might be time to, to you know, put some gas on it. All right, let me open up the lines here, 801-331-8113. Caller, welcome to the show. I think everybody should blow off this coronavirus. Now, when you say blow it off, what does that mean? It's a cold. This is no better. This is nothing more than the flu. And these people, and, and nobody's even sick. It's it's so fake. You now, know, they just are doing anything to destroy the economy, get this president out. No, I'm not I'm not coming out in complete disagreement with you, but I, I'm going to have to mildly disagree in the sense that I do know people who have caught it who have been drastically affected, like medically induced coma on a ventilator sort of stuff. It's very rare. Yeah, I, but, do, but, I do too, actually. But, but I, at, this, at the same time, I understand what you're saying. Most people who have had it, uh, if, if the data is starting to, to show, 
what I think it's showing is they, they've been asymptomatic or maybe they've had a very mild case of it. And I agree, don't shut down the economy. But at the same time, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to play it off as, oh, you know, this is just a big fake illness. I think it's serious for some people, but for the vast majority of us, it's not that big of a deal. I, I think it's serious for some people, too, and it's some pe- most people are, are already medically jeopardized. Meaning Whether they, they're they, overweight, okay. unhealthy, um, old, got diabetes, or Smokers got their already respiratory systems and problems, and and that's just the facts. And I just think that you know these people are using this as just a way to stall this economy and make everything go downhill. And they're willing to do that in your life. They're willing to destroy your life. Well, they're they're willing to do what it takes to assume control. And destroying our lives, yeah, that's a small price to pay for me to be in control. I mean, we, we have so much stuff going on in this country right now that I have never seen in my lifetime. I mean, you got cities that governors and mayors are turning a blind eye to rioting and, you know, police, you know, going after the police. It's, it's out of control right now. You know, municipalities are broke. It's already, in Illinois, it's been proven that... Little, the Ponzi scheme's over, and I've been saying this forever. And you know the, the the stuff that they're promising their employees is unsustainable. Just like Social Security, it'd be good if they took the money and left it there to grow, but they take the money and then they use it in the manner they're not supposed to be using it in. Agreed. And and therefore that money, they sometimes you lose when you gamble. Let me ask you this, Rob. Look, tell me something. What's something that you and I could do to contribute toward the preservation of sanity and, and towards preserving our civilization, or at least the good parts of our civilization? Is there well, any, anything that the, comes to mind? Yeah, right off the bat, any career politician that is running, um, I would not vote them in. I would get them out. Because why are we following the advice of these people when they can't even manage the checkbooks? Municipalities all all across this country are in the red. The federal government's in the red. Why are we trusting these people? We're finding we're finding so much corruption year after year of money being just squandered and wasted tax dollars, and no one's being held accountable. There's the first, like we talked about a while back. This is the first person I've ever heard use. The equation of a million dollars, trying to save a million dollars here, a million dollars there. Where do you begin? These people don't want that because they can't have that. It's okay. beyond trying to save millions of dollars. F- fair enough. I'm going to stop you here, Rob. Thanks for the call. I, you know, I guess everybody may have a different answer. I personally, my gut is telling me that uh, that whatever is going to contribute to a solution is more likely to come from the individual level than it is from the political level. And, and you know, it's not like I have all the answers. I really don't. But the, the longer that I watch politics, and I've been paying attention, I mean, like, really paying attention and trying to understand it for a long time, better part of 25 years now, and it's intensely clear 
that politics is great at giving the appearance of solving problems, but it only creates more problems. In other words, politicians will tell you whatever they want or whatever you want to hear. They're wonderful at mirroring back to you whatever their focus group tested positively on. Tell them this and they'll vote for you there, Senator. Okay. They'll also do whatever it takes to keep getting the financial donations to keep them in office, to keep their their campaign war chests, you know, well-funded. So when it comes to the preservation of sanity, when it comes to the preservation of our civilization, I think that's going to fall more to the individual level. And if that sounds like, whoa, wait a minute, Brian, our cities are burning. What the heck can I do? Well, you might be surprised. Actually, I'm going to share some thoughts from Paul Rosenberg, just the other side of these messages. Stick around. I promise it will be worth it. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. All right, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. You know, I I would think that at one time it would have sounded like hyperbole to say, you know, we have lost our sanity and our civilization. I I was listening to an album of railroad songs, you know, for kids and and thinking about when I was a little kid listening to it. My mom had this album saved and we put it on. My boys were howling because I still knew every word to these dumb songs and they were just as corny as heck. I mean, come on. It was Cowboy Joe singing them and just just crazy. I mean, you can't go wrong with it's like uh, blow the whistle, blow the whistle, ring the bell. Anyway. And I thought back, you know, as a kid, I, I would try to envision what is the future going to look like? What will we have? Will there be flying cars? I thought there would be. Instead, what do we have? Hey, your pancake syrup is racist, man. (laughs) That is not a civilization that is in its ascendancy. That is a civilization that is circling the drain and about to go down the hole in the middle of the commode. Not good. But the good news is that there are things that can be done, but you have to be smart in how you approach it. And part of that is stop trying to attach yourself to a movement. We naturally are looking for, you know, people who agree with us. Oh, look, I have allies. Oh, see, I must be doing something right. Paul Rosenberg has a terrific essay. This just hit my email inbox earlier today about the preservation of sanity and civilization. In fact, he said, I hadn't planned on this post, but this ongoing mania. Do we have to spell out what that is, right? Cities in flames, statues being toppled, people attacked. Uh, we're, We're off the rails. He says, this compels me to contribute something toward the preservation of sanity and civilization. So here are some things to remember. Now, tell me if this rings true. Number one, humans are idolaters. At least most most are when pressured. What we're seeing right now is an expression of idolatry and dogma. And he says, bear in mind that the proudly anti-religious are often the most idolatrous and dogmatic. So whenever people are getting whipped up for a cause, any cause, that's the right time to step away. And if they start chanting, he says, move away quickly. I'll forego the long expression or the long explanation rather, but joining the pack slays reason. And for as long as you remain in the pack. And he says, this really is idolatry because whatever we place above reason, whatever we place above open questioning has become our God. 
So that's number one. Secondly, Paul Rosenberg says the crowd is always a deceiver. No one expressed this more concisely than Simone Weil when she said, conscience is deceived by the social. Maybe another way to remember this, he says, is conscience is individual, social is collective, and the two are at odds. Likewise, sanity is individual and mania is collective. Within the crowd, malice appears as duty, honor, order, and justice. To reside in the crowd is to be deceived. The only question is, how much? And just a few specifics. He says, anytime you surrender your decision-making to outsiders, you are making an error. And yes, that means that authority is fundamentally a scam. He also says, the more intimidated you are, the less your better or higher functions operate. Moral courage is far, far more important than physical courage. And I love how he puts this. The mob is the enemy of what's best in you. Separate from it at the first opportunity. Now, the thinking behind this is that civilization is not a function of systems. It's a function of what's in us. We are the primaries. All systems, good, bad, or indifferent, are derivatives. And the great error of the democratic era, certainly true over my now fairly considerable lifetime, he says, was that the people believed democracy would solve all their problems and would by itself assure civilization. But that was always an idolatrous dream. And what matters is what we are as individual people. Did you catch that? What we are as individual people is what matters. And what a coincidence, because that's what you and I actually have control over, as opposed to the rest of the world around us and the people around us. Paul Rosenberg says no institution is to be taken as anything more than a blunt tool. The civilization we hold in ourselves is what holds the world in sanity. And nothing else can do. Nothing else will hold it there, no matter how it's advertised. When you put people into groups, he says that degrades human function. As individuals, we are the magical creatures who can reverse entropy willfully. But within the group, we're just a collection of pieces trying to feel powerful. Being grouped degrades us and teaches us bad lessons. Standing as an individual makes us better, sometimes in spurts and sometimes slowly. Whatever exceptions and gray areas may exist, joining a crowd makes us worse. What makes us better is freedom of conscience, a recognition of human dignity, and a belief in our own efficacy. And finally, he says, I have one more statement. I want to make this very clearly. I hope you remember it. The people who marshal movements, who pull them together, are taking advantage of human weaknesses. And yes, he says, many of them are aware of it. So step away from the crowd, cultivate your individual mind, and have civilization in yourself. Does that ring true? Let me tell you why this this hits me so hard. It's because I have seen people put this into practice, and it's not like, yes, you've got to be such a rugged individualist, you can't commit to anybody or any cause because, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm Ayn Rand, right? <laughs> I'm the ultimate individual. This is the fountainhead. But actually, what I see is when people work on developing that civilization in themselves, when they work on getting their own character in order, Something happens to the people around them. And if you're thinking, what, they become followers? No, something better. 
They become leaders because they put their own character in order. That's how you can tell a good leader from someone who's, who's not such a great leader. Great leaders do not create more followers. They create more leaders. And you may think, you know, maybe you're having this moment of false modesty, thinking, well, you know, I'm just one person. What can I do? You know, I don't have those kind of leadership skills. Stop kidding yourself. If you're processing oxygen and you can understand the words coming out of my mouth, you have leadership. Now, if you think leadership only exists with fancy titles and three-piece suits and, you know, lab coats and uniforms and the like, no. It can be found in those situations, but none of those trappings are necessarily an indication that you're dealing with a leader. You know you're dealing with a leader when you are dealing with someone who is using their influence as wisely as possible wherever they happen to be at this very moment. I don't care if you're standing in line at the grocery store and you see somebody who, you know, is is a few bucks short on their purchase and they're trying to decide, what do I put back? The diapers or the baby formula? You know how a leader would handle that, right? Hand them a job application. Tell them, get to work. No. A leader would step up there and help them in an affirming way, not in, you know, a way that puts them down or makes them feel guilty. All right, I'll pay for it. And tell me that if some you saw someone do that, if you saw someone reach up and say, you know what, let me help you there. We've all been there before. We've all been the person who needed that, that momentary boost. When it's your turn, you go ahead and pay it forward. What would your reaction be if you were a person standing there watching that happen? I mean, I can't speak for you. You are your, your own person. But I know for me, it would, it would definitely inspire my heart to be more aware of the next time I see someone in need to be that person willing to step up. That's what I'm saying. Leadership isn't about creating followers. It's about creating more leaders. And it can happen in small, seemingly insignificant ways that you hadn't really planned on that nonetheless make a difference because in some way you are making the world a better place. The example I gave you, I know, is is a, a piffling example compared to all of the sadness and heartache that there is in this world. But if you can look for those little places that you can help, you start to recognize we all have more influence than we really think we do. And once people start to live with that intention of, I'm going to use my influence as wisely as possible, for some, it blossoms into a full-grown sense of purpose and mission, and they become an almost unstoppable force. I don't have words to express how much I love being around people who've caught that vision and are living their lives with that kind of purpose. And it's different for every single person. Some person may have the gift of they're, they're a very talented artist. Some person may be a very talented writer. Someone may have, you know, healing skills. They're a physician. But at some level, we've got to walk back that idea that there's something wrong in the world. Quick, get me a politician. Stat. They'll certainly make a lot of noise about, look at all the things I'm doing for you. Look at how I'm making the world a better place. But they always seem to bring power struggles and complications. Oh, and want you to pay for it. Well, they take all the accolades. Don't worry about the accolades. Step up, do the right thing, 
and exercise that influence as wisely as you can wherever you are right now. Hey, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. By the way, my line is open, 801-331-8113. If you'd like to participate in the conversation, refute anything you've heard that needs to be refuted, or perhaps bolster it with your own wisdom, I am all ears. I have kind of a lightning round here, a couple different topics I wanted to hit for you. Um, One of the things I've watched with a lot of concern is all the statues being torn down and defaced. And there's a terrific article from intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Kurt Malberg. You can't learn from a history that's been deleted. And and if you you pick up a book to read, I mean, I'm recommending a lot of books here lately, probably because, uh, well, there's something good that happens when you start reading books. Take some time to read 1984. Pay close attention to the memory hole, one of the most haunting images used in Orwell's novel. Used by government workers at the Ministry of Truth, the shoot in the wall enabled Oceania's one-party government to edit history at will and incinerate all evidence of their propagandistic deeds. Orwell described it as every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten, every picture has been repainted, Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. So as you watch these people pulling down these statues, some of of whom were not slave traders or bad guys necessarily, they've just been labeled as such. Or, you know, they... I don't know how to put this. If you are insistent on judging the people from the past by the standards of your day or the understanding of your day, it's a tremendously unfair thing to do. Number one, they're not around to defend themselves. Number two, for most of them, it was the world they were born into. And, you know, there obviously there were some things that, that people did try to correct. I can promise you there will be people at some point looking at what you and I have put up with and the things that we have championed. And will condemn us as harshly or worse. Well, at least we won't have any statues of us. Yeah, probably a good thing. I mean, Winston Churchill, torn down. (laughs) Matthias Baldwin, torn down. The problem here is, when you tear down these monuments, whether it's a Confederate monument or not, you are denying actual history that took place just because that monument or statue exists does not mean that it is celebrating this and well it was only put up in the first place to make us feel bad in our day your decision to feel bad was in fact your decision own it you chose to let it affect you and if it was a bad decision then let that monument be a a vivid teaching example This monument represents a time of terrible unpleasantness. And maybe it inspires you to start learning a little bit more about it. I don't mean go to a a modern day textbook and see what some, you know, egghead thinks about what uh, happened. You'll notice the, the content always seems to favor whomever's in charge at the moment. You want to be serious about it? Try this. Go find books that were written from the era in question and read them. 
Well, what if I encounter some false ideas? Oh, you probably will. But at least you'll have an accurate representation of what people were actually thinking at that time. And that's not something you'll have at your disposal if these history cancelers continue their crusade. I know it sounds, you know, like hyperbole to say this, but they are really no better. They are soulmates with the Nazis who burned books and the Maoists who destroyed all vestiges of everything that came before the great proletarian, you know, cultural revolution. These cancel artists are trying to deny you the ability to learn and decide for yourself. Why would they do that? What would they want to accomplish? There's a great quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, by the way, in this article from intellectualtakeout.org. The author here says, but in trying to delete the past like their browser history, they miss what Solzhenitsyn understood after staring Soviet totalitarianism in the face. Quote, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. End quote. So hold yourself accountable. Become educated for yourself. Do not let somebody else tell you. You can think this, you can say this, or not. Annie Holmquist, writing for Intellectual Takeout, also has a terrific article about tearing down the greats and the great democratic spirit. I like the example she uses at the beginning of this article. Imagine a white male carrying an American flag, wearing a Trump t-shirt, and accessorizing with a MAGA hat. Now imagine him looking at a wall of pictures memorializing various black individuals killed by police and imagine him doing so in the, within the new, newly established autonomous zone in Seattle. Now, if you think that sounds like a recipe for disaster, you're right. A video which surfaced earlier this week on the Daily Chop, a Twitter handle showing scenes of life in the autonomous zone, gives just such a picture. The man is soon surrounded by several young women who chew him out for his presence in the chop claiming that he, along with the silent expressions of his opinion, were traumatic and traumatizing to them. Subsequent videos show a fight over his flag with members of the CHOP arguing amongst themselves. Some advocated for violence, while others tried to reason with their comrades and say he has a right to protest and not be accosted by those angry with his views. But Annie Holmquist says, I want to focus not on the video, I want to focus on that word trauma. After hearing it repeated over and over in the dialogue, she was reminded of one of her favorite lines from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Proposes a Toast. Now, this line is uttered by the demon Screwtape, exulting over the devil's success in transforming the education systems of democratic societies. He notes that equality, the key characteristic of democracies, infects schools, particularly when advanced children are being held back for fear of giving less advanced children a trauma. Beelzebub, what a useful word, by being left behind. Screwtape, she realized, is talking about democracies and their effectiveness for his cause. Democracy, declares Screwtape, is the word with which you must lead them by the nose. And he continues, It will never occur to them that democracy is properly the name of a political system, even a system of voting, and that this has only the most remote and tenuous connection with what you are trying to sell them. Nor, of course, must they ever be allowed to raise Aristotle's question whether democratic behavior means the behavior that democracies like or the behavior that will preserve a democracy. For if they did, 
it could hardly fail to occur to them that they need not be the same. Now, Annie Holmquist says this is curious. Truly, it seems there's no word Americans love throwing around around more so than democracy. Yet, is it possible that such devotion to democracy could actually lead to its undoing? As Screwtape said, democracy demands equality, and equality in turn leads to pulling others down to level the playing field. But the worst, or best, in Screwtapian language is yet to come. Quote, what I want you to fix your attention on is the vast overall movement toward the discrediting and finally the elimination of every human excellence, moral, cultural, social, or intellectual. And is it not pretty to notice how democracy, in the incantory sense, is now doing for us the work that was once done by the most ancient dictatorships, and by the same methods? Cut them all down to a level, all slaves, all ciphers, all nobodies, all equals. Thus tyrants could practice, in a sense, democracy. But now democracy can do the same work without any other tyranny than her own. Think about that statue toppling for a moment. Those statues represent great figures in our history. Now these statues toppled or even reaching the father of our country, George Washington. Were these men flawed? Annie Holmquist asks. Yes, of course they were. But so is everybody currently on this earth. These men, however, accomplished great things, things that many of us can never aspire to. Maybe today these Americans just don't want to be reminded of the great deeds of Americans in the past. What if they don't want to be reminded of the chasm that separates their great thoughts and exploits from our own minuscule achievements today? Screwtape continues, For democracy or the democratic spirit, diabolical sense, leads to a nation without great men, a nation mainly of subliterates, morally flaccid from lack of discipline in youth, full of the cocksureness which flattery breeds on ignorance, blustering or whimpering if rebuked. And, if, and this is what hell wishes every democratic people to be. It is our function to encourage the behavior, the manners, the whole attitude of mind, which democracies naturally like and enjoy, because these are the very things which, left un, if left unchecked, will destroy democracy. Interesting. By the way, Annie Holmquist ends with, there's a certain line from an old off-cast-off book which declares, professing themselves wise, they became fools. And she says, and that, my friends, seems to summarize exactly where we are at, having adopted Screwtape's democratic spirit. I'll keep it in the show notes. You can find them at lovingliberty.net. Thank you so much for joining us.